0: Take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6. We began this series a few weeks ago by taking a look at the importance of God's Word. You remember we were in Psalm 119 on the first Sunday of the year. Uh, We then went into creation. We, We talked last week about how sin entered into the world. And I hope you're keeping up with us in our Bible reading plan as we seek to read the Bible through in in one year. And uh, if you're not, for one reason or another, uh, listen, it's not too late to jump in. It's not too late to continue in this. The important thing is that you're reading God's Word, not that you check a, a, a box um, saying that you've done it that day. That's, that's not the most important thing. By the way, um, I've heard of several of you that have said, you know what, I was just struggling in, in reading every single day, but I downloaded um, a way to listen to the Bible, and I listen to it as I'm driving. That is an excellent, excellent way. Um, if you struggle with reading, or, or, then, then download the Bible so you can listen to it. And we can, if you, would li- if you would like, we'd be happy to show you how to do so. I have several different methods for that. On Sunday mornings, we're working through the big picture of God's story. What has God done in the past? What is He doing right now? What is He going to do in the future? At the beginning of the year, we start in Genesis. At the end of the year, we will be in Revelation. Today, we get to the story of Noah and the flood. So I want you to jump in with me right away. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. Here we go. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Paul's right there. Now I read a verse like that uh, and as a man, I think, well, that makes sense. That makes sense. God created man and he created woman and he created man to believe and think that women are attractive. That's how God created us. There's nothing wrong with this picture as it's been presented to us so far. Nothing at all. It's what comes after this that becomes very, very concerning. Look at the end of verse 2. End of verse 2. Here's what it says. And they took as their wives any as they chose. Any they chose. Now as we work through the first part of this story, there's going to be several warning flags that are kind of thrown up by the author of Genesis before going into the account of the flood itself, okay? Here is warning flag number one. They took as many wives as they wanted. That's warning flag number one. They took as many wives as they wanted. Now, the context of this passage makes it clear that if a man wants a woman, he just takes her. okay, And and, and not just her, but any woman that he wants. As many wives as he wants. From whatever culture or background or religion or heritage, whatever it is, he, he takes this woman as his wife, multiple women as his wife. Now, there's a major problem with this. Because we find in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, very, at the very beginning, sin hasn't even entered the world yet. And here is what we find. Verse 24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, not wives, to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The design of God is for one man, one woman to make up a marriage, nothing more, nothing less. So the first warning flag that we see here in Genesis chapter 6 is that men are taking many wives. When God has commanded that one woman, one man, to be the model for marriage. You think, well, well, that's not too bad. That's not a horrible sin, right? Now, if you're a lady here right now, you're thinking, that's absolutely horrible, right? That's exactly what my wife would say. They could be doing much worse things, you might think. Well then we move on to warning flag number two. And here it is. They were known for their pride. The people were known for their pride. We're going to pick up reading in verse three. Read verses three and four. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim. Uh, Which by the way, pause there for just a minute. The Nephilim just very simply means giant, okay? There's literally giants who were walking the earth during this time period. Verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in these days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now I'm going to jump in with a side note here for just a minute that I believe is important before we continue with this warning flag number two, okay? This passage, especially these first several verses that I just read, um, could be very confusing and are actually very confusing about who the author's talking about, about what kind of people he's talking about. There's a large amount of argument all around this for for different interpretations. Uh, Is he speaking strictly of humans or is there some kind of demonic activity that's taking place in which demons are uh, inhabiting great numbers of men? Um, is the author referring to the line of Seth as the sons of God there and, the, the, um, and to the line of Cain as the daughters of man? Uh, those are two of the arguments, among many others, about what might be talked about here. There's really no clear answer on it. However, I tend to lean toward there being a heavy, heavy demonic presence on the earth at this time. And that demonic presence helps steer mankind into an absolute rejection of God. We're going to find here in just a moment that there is none on the earth that's righteous except for one person. Now, how in the world does that happen? Why else would the earth get to the point of that taking place in which there's an utter lack of godliness that God has to destroy the whole thing and start over again? So my thought and my opinion in this, I'll, I'll be clear, that's my opinion, is that there is a heavy amount of demonic activity. And that's what this passage is referring to, this first four verses. But let's jump back in here with warning flag number two. Commentators across the board generally agree that one of the condemning mindsets that the men on earth had was that they could marry as many wives as they wanted, have as many children as they wanted, with great numbers of children. And with the great numbers of children came the ability to have extreme dominance over large groups of people. One of the first things that came to my mind when I was reading this passage was in regards to wondering how many people could possibly be on the earth at this time period. Right before the, the flood, how many people could possibly be there? This is only Genesis chapter six, right? There's only been six to only five chapters before this. Well, at the flood, it is 1600 years after creation. 1600 years. Now there's millions of people on the earth at this point. There are millions of people. And the amount of people that the earth could occupy at this point is absolutely enormous. Especially when the goal of mankind in general is have as many kids as possible so that you can have great prominence wherever you are. And the great danger here and the great sin is that mankind had a desire to make themselves God. They had a desire, an innate desire, to make themselves God. They wanted to rule. They wanted to be in charge. They wanted to be the ones who were the most powerful. If they could just procreate enough and gain enough ground in the area of resources, then they could be the God of their own little world. And then here's warning flag number three. And this one is absolutely huge. Here it is. They were utterly depraved. Utterly depraved. Let's start reading in verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually verse 6 and the lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart now the lord looks on mankind and he sees two things two things number 1 the wickedness of man was great on the earth number 2 every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually every intention there's very, very specific here every intention on his heart was only evil continually. There is no end to the wickedness of mankind here. There's none at all. They are utterly depraved. They do whatever they want, when they want, how they want, and in no regard whatsoever to how it might offend God. And the reality is that it is highly offensive to God, what they are doing. They've turned their back on their Creator. They're doing nothing but pursuing themselves. Verse 6 there says that God regrets that he made mankind to begin with. It tells us there that the the sin of mankind grieves God to his heart, to his core, to everything about who God is. He is grieved because of what's taking place. Now, God is the creator of the very same people who have turned their back on him. He made them. We found out a couple weeks ago, and we talked about it more last week, that he made them. In His image, they are supposed to be the reflection of Him on the earth. But yet right now, they are anything but the reflection of God. Folks, God can do something about this pervasive sin that's taken place. What does He decide to do? Look at verse 7. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, For I am sorry that I have made them. In the time that we've got left this morning, I want to walk through two main thoughts, okay? Here they are. Number one, God's judgment is just. Number two, God's favor can be found. Let's start with number one there. God's judgment is just. And we're actually not going to get into the story of Noah's ark today. Um, I'm going to assume that you know that story. And if you don't, for one reason or another, then I want to encourage you this afternoon to go read Genesis chapter 6 through chapter 9. Okay? But I'm pretty sure that you know what's coming in this story. God's going to send a huge flood. It's going to wipe out all of his creation that is on earth. All of it's going to be gone. None of it is going to survive except what's on the ark with the animals and eight people. That's Noah and his family. Okay, that's it. Now many people would read this story about the mass wiping out of millions of humans and they would wonder why God would do something like that. They would say, wait a minute, you have told me that God is a good God, right? You have told me that God loves us with an everlasting love, You have told me that God is the God of second chances. And, And the answer is yes to all of that. Yes, God is a good God. Yes, God loves us with an everlasting love. Yes, God gives us chance after chance after chance. But in his love and his goodness, get this, in God's love and his goodness, he is no less just. Because at that point, if he was any less just, then he would cease to be God. He is love. He is good but he is just. God created Adam and Eve, and he gave them a choice to obey one rule. He told them, obey this one rule. You have a choice whether you're going to do it or not. And they disobeyed it. And with that choice, sin enters into the world, and every single human being who was ever born had a choice to make about whether they were going to follow God or follow themselves. Every single person. And at this time here in Genesis chapter 6, God has searched the whole world over and he has only found one man who loves him and seeks his will. Just one out of millions. Just one. And with that came a realization that something drastic has got to take place and God's righteous wrath and his justice came on all of those people who had made the choice to reject him. Folks, the righteous wrath of God is the scariest thing that any human being could ever face. There is nothing in this world more serious than the righteous wrath of God. Back in 1741, a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon that is probably one of the most popular or famous sermons in all of history. It was entitled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in that he talks about the the righteous wrath of God. And here's how he described it. The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course. And when once it is loose, It is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld, but your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing, and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing more and more mighty, and there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back, that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward." If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. Here's what I want you to get here. And that is that our God is an awesome God and we all deserve his wrath because of our sin. Every single one of us. Every single one of us deserve the wrath of God. We all fall into one of two categories, okay? We're either under the wrath of God or we're under the favor of God. A human being is under the wrath of God if they reject the fact that he alone is God and that they are not. A human being is under the wrath of God if they do not accept his way to forgiveness of sins. A human being is under the wrath of God if they choose to go their own way rather than going God's way. Folks, it doesn't matter if your sweet and kind grandmother or your next door neighbor is as nice as he can be, it doesn't matter who it is. If they reject God, not allowing him to dictate how salvation is found, and if they choose to go their own way, then they are under the just and the righteous wrath of God. And there is no level of goodness that can meet God halfway. There is no priest that is here on this earth that can put in a good word for you so that you can be in a right standing with God. The choice is simple, right? It's God's way or it's your own way. Your way will result in something in in, in God's judgment and it will send you to a literal hell. God's way, on the other hand, is something that's much better than anything else that's on this earth. Folks, there is something on earth that God loves more than he loves the human race. There is something on this earth that God loves more than he loves the human race. It is his glory in the universe because he knows that there is nothing that compares with that glory. And he loves his creation too much to let it persist in wickedness. And at the same time, he loves glory and justice too much to let the wicked go unpunished. The sin of man grieves God because of what it did to his creation and to his glory. It was devastating. It, 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 it caused the human race to be absolutely devastated for all of the future until Jesus comes back one day and God creates a new heaven, a new earth. So he decides to do something about it. At that time, his decision was to wipe out the earth as it was. Genesis chapter six: millions of people have made the choice to pursue themselves, and God is grieved because they have chosen the way of judgment. Today, right now, today, millions of people continue to choose to pursue themselves, and God is grieved because his desire is that none should perish, but all should come to repentance. He gives a choice. But the heart of God is grieved when mankind chooses themselves over him. In Genesis chapter 6, it seems like it's hopeless. In fact, if you were to only read the first seven verses of the chapter, then you'd be left with a sense of despair, right? There is no hope whatsoever for mankind at all. There's no hope whatsoever for creation. God's just going to be done with all of it. But verse 8, look at verse 8, look at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And in this, we see that God's favor can be found. God's favor can be found. Isaiah chapter 59 is a chapter in which um, the author, Isaiah, talks extensively about the sin of the people and how that sin is going to lead to their judgment from God. But he starts that chapter off with an incredible verse. I absolutely love this. Here's what he says. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Okay, Do you know what that means? It it means two things. Number one, God has the power to save. But not only does God have the power to save, he has the will to save. The Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. Folks, in, in, in no way does God not have the ability to save the sinner who is under God's judgment. God has the power to do that. Right? Not only that, but he's got the will to do it. God's ear is not dull to where he cannot hear the person who cries out to him for salvation. At any time, all of the millions of people who were under the wrath of God before the flood could have cried out to him and he would have saved them. He had both the power to do so and he had the will to do so. You know, the same thing can be said today. The very same thing can be said today. Not only does God have the power to reach down into the nastiness of our sin and save us, but he's got the will and he's got the desire to do so. God's favor can be found. Now, we've got to be careful about using that word favor, okay, in our culture today because of the strong cultural implications that that term brings in the form of the prosperity gospel movement. Now, when I use that term, when God uses that term favor, he does so with his grace and mercy in terms of salvation in mind. It's not this idea of being favored with great wealth and great health and great happiness. I want to leave you with a few things to take away from this today, okay? Write these down. Here's three things I want you to take away. Number one, do not live with blinders on regarding the corruptness of this world. Do not live with blinders on regarding the corruptness of this world. People are not basically good, as you might be told. No, they are born sinners who are cast off from God, they're separated from God because of their sin. They are not born basically good, they're born evil. The world is cursed by sin, and that fact should grieve the heart of every single believer. That fact should honestly wreck us. The corruptness of this world should wreck us because we know what we have been given through the salvation that is offered to us by God, and we know the way that sin grieves him. Folks, are you wrecked today because of the corruptness of this world? I want to argue that it won't be until you are wrecked by the corruptness and the sin in this world that you'll be willing to do something about it. Number two, God's judgment and wrath are terrifyingly real. God's judgment and his wrath are terrifyingly real. That judgment and that wrath is going to come on anyone who is not found by him to have placed their faith and trust in Jesus as their Savior. Now many of you are sitting here under the sound of my voice right now or maybe you're watching online right now and you have family members and you've got friends who have no idea of the reality of God's judgment. They have no idea what it is they're facing. Folks, we've only scratched the surface of what what we could have talked about regarding the wrath and the judgment of God today. But there is a world that is in desperate need of knowing what they can truly expect from God because of their sin. Somebody's got to tell them. Folks, never should we preach the judgment of God and ignore the favor of God, ever. And that brings me to my third point here. People need to hear that they can find favor in God's eyes. People need to hear that they can find favor in God's eyes. Folks, not great wealth, not great health, not necessarily nothing but happiness in life. This is a favor that is unmatched because it's a favor that includes God looking on a person. And instead of seeing them in their sin-cursed state, in their state of separation from him, he instead sees the righteousness of Jesus in the place of that sinner. I can't help but think when God is here at the, right before the flood and he's thinking about everything, about wiping out all these people, of judging all these people in the snap of a finger, He looks on them in love because they are his creation. But he also looks on them and he says, I have to hold true to what I have said. This is an evil people that have to be judged. But I can't help but think he's also looking forward to a day in which a Savior is going to come. He's going to be born in a stable in Bethlehem. He's going to live a sinless, perfect life. The life that we were supposed to live. He's going to die a death on a cross that is absolutely excruciating. Why? So we don't have to die that death. Three days later, he's going to rise from the dead, and in doing so, he's going to defeat death forever. No more does death and sin have to have a hold on a person. It can be freed from them. I can't help but think that God is looking ahead to that day in which he is going to offer redemption to Kivit. And he's going to offer redemption to Carl. He's going to offer redemption to Heidi. Because God God never, ever, ever is only just. He's also love. And in his love, he provides a way for us to have salvation. Folks, people need to hear that they can find favor in God's eyes. The reality of the story of God as a whole is that it includes judgment and his righteous wrath. It includes those things. But just as much as it includes those things, it is a story of redemption. That redemption can be a part of your story. It can be a part of your neighbor's story. It can be a part of your family member's story. It can be a part of your story. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I'm going to close our time in prayer here, and then we're going to sing We're we'll to sing a song about how He is our rescuer. But I have to ask: is God your rescuer today? He's offering it. He's offering redemption, salvation from your sin. But have you accepted it? Is God your rescuer today? And if not, then as soon as the service is over, I'm going to be mingling around and I want to encourage you to come talk to me. Tell me, I need for God to be my rescuer. Folks, if God is not your rescuer, then the reality is that you are under the wrath, the righteous wrath of God. There is nothing protecting you whatsoever but through the blood of our savior and the giving of his body much like we celebrated today we remember today you can have forgiveness redemption from your sin you can have a relationship with God our father we come to you and it's not easy to talk about the justice of you It's not easy to talk about your wrath. But Father, it is absolutely necessary because without an understanding of it, we don't know what we've been given through Jesus. Father, would you remind us of who we are in Christ? If we are believers, we are justified by Jesus. And by our repentance of sin. Father, would you rescue those around us who are in need of rescue? Oh God, what a great God you are. There is none like you, Father. And Father, may we today remember what it is that you've given us in salvation or turn to you in salvation. We love you, Father but only because you first loved us and you sent Jesus to die in our place. Thank you for that. It's in his holy and precious name I pray, amen.